Okay, Allison, uh, have you heard the new Taylor Swift album? I don't do that because you do it for both of us. Right. And so thank you for sparing me having to say the name of the album out loud. Because when I say that word and I have tried, it makes me want to throw up in my mouth. It's it's not a proper thing for us to say over the air. We can't. We can't. I mean, there's not a lot of regulation in podcasting, but we're we're going to regulate ourselves on that one. So there's this song called Cornelia Street, and I was listening to it on my way home from work tonight. And I came home and was looking at the lyrics, which is sort of a mistake, but the lyrics did make me think about our journey with Josefina. The lyrics are, I hope I never lose you, hope it never ends, I'll never walk Cornelia Street again. That's the kind of heartbreak time could never mend, I'll never walk Cornelia Street again. Now, for me, it's like, you know, if Taylor will give me some liberty on this, I hope I lose you, I'm very glad this ends, I will never walk Josefina's streets again. This is the kind of heartbreak time hopefully can mend. I'm never going back to Josefina's place again. I think you missed a real opportunity to drop in El Camino Real, but that's just me. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the American Girls podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series one book at a time. I'm Mary. And I'm Allison. Hey, Allison, how's it going? It's been quite the week. Um, you know, as, as many of you know, there's been some recent coverage that was really exciting. So there's this like really fantastic picture of me that appeared in a local publication of small circulation with my eyes closed. <laughs> that was a very tough photo. And I just sort of feel like they had to have had a pic of you with your eyes open. And when I saw it, it's like, was this a poetic stance to kind of just choose to show you eyes closed? I think it's a commentary on the complicity of white culture in 2019. But I also think it was just a really unfortunate angle of me. And it was thankfully balanced out by some actual excellent coverage of the work that we do together. Thank God. I mean, when you said that you were covered in a news outlet, I guess I just thought you would lead with the fact that we were featured in the New York Times this week, but I do understand wanting to talk about, you know, the ways that a piece in which you're portrayed with your eyes closed might take precedence over being in the New York Times. You know, in all actuality, nothing does. And it was very exciting. And I think part of what made it so thrilling was one, it's something that we do together that we're able to talk about with other people. But also it wasn't just about the show, but this larger phenomenon of women choosing to take time, um, really all listeners, I should say, but primarily women listeners choosing to look back on a thing that they loved and thinking about what it means in their lives today. And we love that the author, Margaret Lyons, put it in the frame of what it means to be a creative, that this really creative thing had this role in influencing who you are now. Right. And I think what's kind of cool about the community that's developing around this show of both um, mostly women, but some men, I want to give them a shout out, is that, you know, American Girl really invited us as children to be creative, to imagine the kind of lives we might make for ourselves. But that process of creativity and imagination isn't over. So I'm 33, as I sort of momentously proclaimed a few episodes ago in true Leo season. Hello, just quick sidebar. This is the most Leo thing I've ever seen in my life. Last week I was traveling for work. I was in Trinidad. Not a humble brag, just saying that's where I was. 
And there was something going on called Carib Fest, which every year um, changes hosts from different Caribbean countries. So this year just happened to be in Trinidad when I was there. So our host very nicely brought us. And I saw a woman named Ophelia from Dominique. She was like their big featured star getting up to do like every country had a night at this festival. And I was there in Dominique night. She got up and was singing some of her songs. She's released many albums, as she reminded us. And at the end of her first song, she's just done one song. She turns to the audience and says, I would like a hand for me. And it was like, oh, my God, Leo season is full on happening right now. I was like, you know what? This one was older. I hope that's me in old age. Just like I don't care anymore whatever but I will say that I am so embarrassed in many ways like I keep at work today our boss actually announced that we were in the New York Times and I my coworker was like you turned beet red and looked like you wanted to be under the table also accurate because Leo season is about attention but only on your terms thank you that's true yeah I I was like oh my god it was also at around nine o'clock and I had not had coffee so I wasn't mentally spiritually emotionally prepared for that but I will just say that we are so honored by this coverage and all the people have reached out to us it's so cool we're meeting all these new people and we did just say it's mostly a community of women but we did just receive a very hot news bulletin by a new male listener who let us know that he found Ashanti in the wild now I want to be clear it was a billboard of Ashanti But thank you, sir, for checking in, and we will post that billboard. Listener Bridget, who we cited previously for explaining certain birthday traditions to us, did also alert us to the fact that Ashanti appears in J-Lo's birthday video this year. Okay, I will check that out. As you know, we're always rooting for Ashanti and just wanting to make sure she is okay. Of course, and I think it's so beautiful that she is in J-Lo's second best production. Her first best production, of course, is the feature film Selena, where she plays Selena. Her second best production is whatever she's doing with her skin. Yeah, she looks amazing. I don't know what's happening, but she looks amazing. I don't know what it costs. I know I'll probably never have access to it, but it's... It's truly phenomenal. Now, I do want to just pivot before we get into this book. And my God, this book and the history it's making us think about. I do want to bring up what I feel are related things in pop culture. Allison, did you have something you wanted to say before that? I didn't. I'm I'm sort of vacillating internally because when you asked what's new with me, the actual like real number one answer that shot forward was that pumpkin flavoring is back at major re- retailers. We're not being sponsored by any of them, but it has made my life a lot better. But I also feel like that's a level of personal sharing that I'll save for a different outlet. You know, I do think we should keep this in because it's your truth. Um, I think it's one of our divides. I am not a pumpkin spice in liquid form person. You can make me a pumpkin bread. I will love you forever. If you try to feed me Dunkin' pumpkin iced coffee, I'll have a personal freak out. I will go into a personal panic room from which I will likely not recover. Here's my only issue with it. Like, to me, people can have any opinion on pumpkin they want, but please don't come for me as an apple lover talking about your opinion on pumpkin. That's literally why we have the expressions apples and oranges, because you don't compare apples to things. Okay. So you're saying people who love apples can't hate on pumpkin stuff? People who love apples and apple spice often come for you and your pumpkin supremacy. And it's like, that's not the energy that I need. I can like both and you cannot like pumpkin. I I accept that. I accept that. Thank you. I don't want to drink 
anything apple or pumpkin. So it's kind of like it's irrelevant to my life. Just as a quick apple drinking apple aside, when I was in Trinidad, I ended up taking a car ride with this person I just met. And I was there with a coworker who was sort of talking to the guy driving the car. So I'm in the backseat alone with this woman. I, I have no clue who she is. We've just met each other. She had just been, you know, have you ever seen mall rats? Yes. You know how Jason Lee like nurses a tiny sample orange juice for like two hours? This woman did that with apple juice in the back of this car. But that's not the thing that disturbed me. This, okay, we're in Trinidad. We were being taken to this beautiful like natural nature park area. You can tell I spent a lot of time in nature. I was like, I don't know where I am. I'm in the back of the seat. There was, for whatever reason, the person driving the car was very into like American easy listening radio, which was sort of upsetting. I'm in the back seat. Um, Hungry Eyes, that song from the 80s comes on. This woman, I think, is like starting to sing it to herself. She was mid-conversation with me and just stopped and started dreaming off into the distance singing the song. At first, I was like, maybe that's not what's happening here. Then Jewel Hands comes on, and she literally was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I have not heard this song in it's got to be decades. And I was like, yeah, Jewel, uh, I heard she's headlining a wellness festival right now. It's cool, I guess. You know, I remember reading her book of poetry and just not really getting it. And she literally was like, stop listening to me. And she was like singing full on hands by Jewel. You know who would love that song? Think about it for one second. Who would love these hands, hands? are small? I know. They are not yours. They are my own. Oh, my God. Josefina? Of course. Of course. Josefina was born out of a fever dream when Val had Jewel playing quietly in the background (laughs) for her little daughter. Yeah. uh, I think this entire book was inspired by... I was... You were meant for me and I was meant for you, except it's Josefina standing off stage right, kind of singing about her dad and Tia Dolores in ways that make absolutely no sense, but are 100% child abuse. I literally was reaching for my phone as I read this book and I was like, do I call DCF? And then I had to remind myself it was a fictional character. But I'm very concerned. Now, before we get into the book, I do just briefly want to touch down on a news story that is of interest, I think, to our listeners. Of course. I need it's to, not us. It's not us. We are not in the news. We're not in the news right now. I need to just drop down on this. So in the article about us, just making it about us for a brief second, Margaret does point us to the fact that there is a Barbie movie in production that Greta Gerwig is is co-making. And I'm very excited for that, even as I have real reservations about her Little Women remake. That said, yesterday, Barbie released two new dolls in its the Inspiring Women series. Now, last year, let me just back up for a second. Last year, in March of 2018, Barbie kind of announced as if this was news that they had done a poll in which women said they were concerned that their daughters didn't have enough good role models, female role models. So kind of stepping into this void that they sort of discovered for themselves out of left field that's been there this whole time, They launched what they called the Inspiring Women series to pay tribute to incredible heroines of their time. So in this first batch, we had Frida Kahlo, Amelia Earhart, and Katherine Johnson of Hidden Figures fame. Okay. Then yesterday, Barbie announced they were adding two people to this series. The first, astronaut Sally Ride. And second one, Rosa Parks. Now, I have a lot to say about this, but I am going to try to limit my feelings. 
I just want to read you briefly a description, their description of Rosa Parks. Rosa Louise Parks led an ordinary life as a seamstress until an extraordinary moment on December 1st, 1955, when she refused an order to give up her seat to a white passenger and move to the back of the bus. Mrs. Parks' act of defiance became the catalyst for the Montgomery bus boycott and so on. Allison? So I'll tell a brief story, right, that I think will maybe open up why we may have issues with that sketch. No? Is that fair? Yeah, please do. So when I was doing research on completely unrelated things, I was in Hampton, Virginia, where the Hampton Institute, now Hampton University is. And a lot of people don't know that later in life, basically no one would hire Rosa Parks. Before she became thought of as an icon, she really struggled because she was in that in-between place of having done something courageous, but not really having a lot of recognition for it. And she was a hostess at the restaurant, the kind of campus restaurant at Hampton University, where all of these very important, prominent intellectuals and leaders were walking through. And she was basically handing them menus to sit down at tables at a campus restaurant. And I think of things like that. And I think of the way that for so long she had no respect and no way to draw capital from this important thing that she did, but everyone else has found ways to get capital. And you and I know because we've done reading on related topics, but this obsession with making a singular person a hero to the detriment of even telling her story correctly is something that people can't seem to stop doing. Mm-hmm. You think of if she was at least an American girl, I'm just going to say it, we would get a six book arc plus a movie deal plus a catalog with other things. But we would know, for example, if we had a meet Rosa, that this was the result of years of organizing, not just by her, but by a group of people and someone we respect very much. A historian taught us that one of the things she did that was so critical was physically making copies of leaflets and information at a time when that was still really challenging. Like it wasn't a copy machine. It was a highly physical process. And that visual completely changes the story from one person being fed up at random one day to an activist with a career. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, so I mean, that's pretty frustrating that they basically think that her life was not worth noting. The events of her life are not worth noting until a so-called extraordinary moment on December 1st, when obviously, as you note, she has a long history of activism before that. But also, if you look at the doll, they're kind of trying to turn Rosa Parks into a pinup, and it just makes me really uncomfortable. Like, I mean, if you look at the other dolls, not in this series, but in Barbie, you see that they are trying to gesture towards more body positivity it's it's very strange i don't know it just it it made me very uncomfortable are we hating because we would wear this look um i would not wear that fabric of that dress but i do enjoy the shape and the aesthetic of that look of course moving on to sally ride and this sort of like gets me into this series this series kind of does and does not engage identity politics when it's useful for them. So when they have a description of Frida Kahlo, they note that she's important because she engaged issues of race, class, and gender in her artwork. Um, obviously, she's a hugely complicated figure, and I will return to her in one second. But for Sally Ride, it's a very generic, again, kind of like Rosa Parks biography. But what's so fascinating about Sally Ride is that not only is she the first American woman in space, 
She's the first that we know of LGBTQ person in space. Now, obviously, if you know anything about her, you know that she did not reveal her sexuality during her life. After her death, her partner revealed their relationship and then continued to work um, in a nonprofit in her name um, afterwards. But it's it's very strange that it's kind of like we want this series to empower young women with role models, but they have an opportunity here to further diversify and be inclusive of all kinds of role models and play with it, not play with identity politics, but use it to empower young girls with rep, you know, representation, which is something we talk about on the show all the time. And they're not doing it. And it just feels really bad. Also, we're in a week when there's a lesbian divorce in space case happening. So it's like, can we please give the lesbian astronauts a break? I mean, the thing that that comes to mind immediately because... Sally choosing not to share that information about yourself, it's always important to think about why that may have been. Mm-hmm. And you think of the way that NASA is so tied up in the military, you couldn't be out. Like it right. was not a possibility. And so it's always really important to look at the context in which a historical person chooses to share or not share that information. And it seems to me the fact that her partner was so open and had a strategy seemingly behind this, it's okay, right? Right. We're not making it a part of someone's story when they didn't identify that way. Right. And I think, I just think back, and I I don't want to make this about me, even though Leo season's technically over, so I probably shouldn't. But um, if I had had a doll who came with a biography, and it was a historical doll that told me that as an adult, Um, she was a woman who desired other women and that was completely normal and fine. Who knows what kind of effect that would have had on me or other, you know, women my age. So I think it just bothers me that in 2019, we're still doing this and kind of picking and choosing when someone's identity or facets of their identity are something that we might package and monetize um, and celebrate. And when we choose to keep things you know, not part of the story of somebody's life. Um, So it's not only that one person stands in for the whole, as you're saying, but also when we do decide to focus on one person, what we choose to focus on. Um, And with Frida Kahlo, it's interesting that she's portrayed in her um, traditional Mexican dress, which she wore on purpose to celebrate her own culture um, as an argument. And at the end of this book, and Peak to the Past, which we'll get to later, we hear that people in New Mexico had mixed emotions about taking on American apparel and trade and all kinds of things. So it kind of flips that um, the U.S. is taking on Mexican heritage and celebrating it in the Barbie doll Frida Kahlo. But in the book that we're here to talk about today... We learned that people in New Mexico, including Josefina's family, have complicated feelings about the U.S. playing a greater role in their lives. So with that, are you ready? And I'm kind of like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're doing this. Val Tripp, I hope you're listening. I have so many questions for you and a lot of blame. Are we ready to do this? I'm very ready. Rapid recap time. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're 
you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So this is book six, Changes for Josefina, which was launched uh, in September of 1998. So it's kind of a birthday period for this. It's a winter story. So we've gone more than a full year. And this is actually our second Christmas season with Josefina. If you recall back to the dramatic scene with the the tapestry and the family project, um, they're all at it again. I'll read the publisher's summary. And there's not a ton of other details to fill you in on to keep you going with this, but we'll tell you what you need to know. So in this book, Josefina's family holds a party to celebrate the end of the Christmas season. Josefina and her sisters handle all of the preparations and the party is a great success. But the girl's pleasure turns to shock the next morning when Tia Dolores announces she's leaving the rancho. Josefina and her sisters are sure Tia Dolores belongs with them and Papa, but their efforts to convince her only make matters worse. There's one person who could persuade Tia Dolores to stay, but how can Josefina get him to help? And just a few other small details that you need to know. We learn that the grandfather, Abuelito, has decided, based on a one-time encounter with Patrick O'Toole, to go to his homeland in the Midwest and to be part of that trading caravan. And this creates a kind of power vacuum in the family, whereby Josefina's sister decides that she will actually go live with the grandma because everyone has to keep Tia Dolores away from the poison and from grandma, um, and she's going to bring her two young sons to be educated in this city. Part of what you have to know about this story is there's a lot of back and forth as to what Tia Dolores really wants, aside from blood. So (laughs) there's this sense that Tia Dolores should stay with the Montoyas because she loves the dad, Um, but she seems to want to leave to go to Santa Fe to stay with the grandmother and to be back with that family, so her kind of nuclear family. Eventually, the father proposes through a letter, and Tia Dolores is thrilled, and they get married on the last page of the book, much to Josefina's delight. I don't even know how to get into this. This book is basically one of the darkest things I've ever read in my life. No joke. What I took away from this is if you scheme, you'll get your dream. Like, that's an optimistic view of what happened here. I have a huge question because I started to rethink everything as I was reading this book. So I want to say one thing that I thought was really positive about it. This was the second Josefina book where I felt like time stopped and I read it really quickly. And when I went through it the first time, the visuals were so beautiful to me and so dark where they paint this picture wherein it's a really cold winter. Like that was kind of surprising that she went that route. Much like when Felicity is out and she's out in the carriage and it's chilly and it's her changes story. Josefina's entire family is physically very cold. They're experiencing this winter that's kind of unusual and it's very dark and it's very bleak. Like the sky is gray, the leaves are brown etc. There's a killer on the loose. But this kind of got me into this mode of like really monitoring exactly what we got told 
about Tia Dolores and from her mouth. And I became increasingly convinced she's not in love with the dad. (laughs) I don't think she's in love with him at all. I think this is a pure survival move. I think this is an economic decision for her. First of all, I do not think the concept of romantic love and marriage had anything to do with one another in this time period in this community, which they sort of hint at when they say, well, it would be convenient if she married, if Papa married her because, you know, then they're already, she's a sister of his former wife and the property that they share in concert between their two families could stay in the family. They wouldn't have to reorganize from a financial standpoint any of their property. It seems to me as though there's nothing warm and fuzzy about this woman and Papa. And to me, it's like, are we just getting Josefina's kind of fever dream fantasy of what she wants to be seeing, which is she wants to see that her father is healed of his grief and has found new love with dot, 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 her aunt. And also that the aunt genuinely wants to stay. Because when I read this book, I was basically like, Tia Dolores wants to get out of here. That's so the impression I got also. So basically the entire book is this epiphany party and then my epiphany that Tia Dolores is trying to cut and run because she has questions about Papa. We I think kind of nailed it where it was like maybe he was a catch at one time. Like maybe in 1800 being able to do a few doodles and fake the violin was enough. She's a an urbane lady who's seen things. And I think she's maybe, done things. And she's done things. And I think maybe Patrick was of interest to her. There was really no hint of that, but I've just decided that. You also kind of look at it where she decides that she's going to leave because basically all the skills she's taught the girls, they've now mastered. Like they are able to play the piano. They have new work hobbies. They're getting along better. And I was like, she's a catch, actually. Yeah, I mean, she kind of has like Mexican Mary Poppins vibes where it's like she will come into a traumatized family and leave it better than she found it. But Mary Poppins leaves in the end. And that's what she's trying to do. Like, basically, she's like, my work here is done. I'm going to go live with my mom. We'll see what I can get up to in Santa Fe. Haven't been there in a long time. Even better, my dad's not going to be there. So I'll have run of the house. We know my mom hates Americans, and basically that's all we've taken away from her in this series with reason. Um, who knows what, like, how, what kind of crime she can commit in Santa Fe? It seems like she will have a lot to do. And I do think that when she goes to stay... So Tia Magdalena shows up in this book kind of from nowhere. Like, we've dropped out of... Like, she's dropped out since when? So that was the exact topic that I was going to segue to because... I find I'm so frustrated with how little we get of her. Yeah, and it's kind of like they expect us, Val expects us to have not remembered any of what happened in our last dealing with Tia Magdalena. What? Here's where we left off with her. A couple books ago, Josefina creates a situation where her Native American friend, who, by the way, has also completely dropped out of these books, gets bitten by a snake so Josefina can heal her and her fantasy of being a healer, which also has no grounding in anything we've been told. That's all of that to the side, yes? I just have to say we were appropriately corrected that the friend's haircut was not a tragedy, but historically appropriate. And I'm just going to say this, like, that was 100% a projection of me and the summer that I've had. With your hair? Yeah. So you're projecting your hair journey onto the child in the book? 
Yeah, and I think I was making it something I it wasn't, and I apologize for that, and I apologize to the friend. I still think she's being used by the Montoyas in some way. Yeah. But when someone reached out and said, no, that's like spot on for how an indigenous girl's hair would be cut, I was like, I hear you. We're wrong. We that stand was corrected. About- I'm just going to say this. You haven't noticed it yet, which is good because that means it wasn't too drastic. I hastily caught my bangs five minutes Allison. before – I know, five minutes before walking out the door today. And my husband said, why do you do this? And I was like, why is the earth round? Like, yeah, it's like there's both an obvious answer and it's infinitely complex. You've just defined bangs. Like it's obvious, but infinitely complex. That's what bangs are. And your relationship to your bangs is quite comparable, I would say. And I have tried to keep it in check. There's only so much I can do and, you know. No one can. That's the point. No one can. Yeah. I mean, look, we stand corrected. That projection was more about probably us than clearly what was historically accurate. And, you know, we're going to grow from that. And that's all we can really say. But I do want to say with Tia Magdalena, the last time we saw her, Josefina had just hastily broken a cherished heirloom, one of a kind left climbed a tree started crying tia dolores comforted her then the next thing we know she's healing her friend of a snake bite in a situation she kind of engineered cut to she imagines she's a healer like her dad we have not seen this woman since then the way you just described josefina it made me wonder if she's actually a cat could be a lot of crying a lot of mewing a lot of climbing into trees a lot of (laughs) shenanigans on roofs a lot of providing people comfort but not really um no but in all seriousness tia magdalena is to me a really good example of a contrast in the way that the author gave i think a different level of texture to peripheral people and felicity i'm thinking of characters like mrs wentworth who kind of came in and out um or miss manderley in the felicity universe like all these extra adults who really gave us a lot of additional layers to the felicity story and i think the adults that are kind of orbiting josefina just really aren't that complicated in this and that's disappointing But the way that Val Tripp writes about them is so odd to me that, for example, with Magdalena on page 31. So at this point, there's a party and Tia Dolores has announced that she's going home with her parents. And Josefina is basically freaking out 24-7 because she absolutely doesn't want this. And in her panic, she's thinking, like, who is there an adult? Is there someone I can go to for advice on how to keep this thing I really don't want to happen from happening? So she thinks she's going to talk to Tia Magdalena about it. And so when it's very clear that Tia Dolores is going to go home, she runs off to her room to be alone and is sort of sitting in her room in the dark. And Tia Magdalena appears and says to her, all afternoon I've had the feeling that you wanted to ask me something. And it's like... Where did you get that idea? Like, nothing in this book prepares you for Josefina wanting anything. First of all, we've had no interactions with Tia Magdalena. She's like, you know what? Um, My healer sense gives me a psychic sense. And in a Miss Cleo type way, I know that you want to ask me something. And then Josefina kind of backs off because at this point she's sort of embarrassed and is like, well, there's something I wanted to ask, but it's kind of not relevant anymore. So, um, and Tia Magdalena sort of figures out that she's, like very upset and says you know before she came you were heart sick with sorrow Josefina says yes and she ends up giving Josefina a medal of a heart 
that she's supposed to wear to represent kind of like her prayer for her heart's desire, which for Josefina is her family's happiness. Now, let me discuss the shadiness of this heart medal, which is introduced as something akin to a saint's medal. Now, having grown up Catholic, I know that it's very cherished to wear the medal of a saint who is the patron saint of either a cause or thing that you care very deeply about. So if you were an athlete, you would often be given like a St. Christopher medal, for example. He's the patron saint of athletes. She is given this heart in the same way where it's like you wear it. It's supposed to represent this prayer you have for your life. She gets really, the only time she ever acts like an actual eight-year-old, and we'll get into this more, is when she rips off that medal and throws it into the snow. And she's like, forget it. I'm not going to get what I want. And the dad picks it up and is like, I found this. Is Was this yours? And she's like, yeah, but kind of doesn't matter or whatever. And he figures out, he's like, look, I know you want me to propose to Tia Dolores. I get it. But she's not into me and she's made it very clear she wants to go home. And and Josefina's like, you do not understand women. True. (sighs) Which he for sure does not. But he's like, oh, well, that's sad. He holds on to it. He asks her to deliver a letter or the grandfather to deliver a letter to Tia Dolores, who has gone to stay for a few days in town with Tia Magdalena question mark <laughs> and of course Josefina ends up delivering this letter and out of it drops he she opens the letter and the heart metal drops out and I'm like I'm sorry you are using your daughter's heartbroken heart metal to propose marriage to your sister-in-law aka future wife I mean honestly like because when you read those kinds of scenes and you think about the fact that we're getting this filtered through Josefina does this family need a caretaker like on a professional basis or a mother slash there's probably just no difference in the 1820s? Yeah, it's it's so weird to me that the way that this book is written is in many ways reading back onto the past both a notion of family or or what a mother is supposed to be in a family and what a marriage is that is not commensurate with the time period in which it's written, while also insisting upon a vision of childhood that likely is commensurate with the time period. So in other words, like Tia Dolores is supposed to be this warm, nurturing mother who cares about the emotional well-being of her surrogate children and her future husband, and he's supposed to be very touchy-feely and in touch, even though he's not. And Josefina is also a child in the sense of an 1820s child. In other words, she's a little adult. She is not a child. So to that point, because we basically end this entire series with Josefina getting a stepmother, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about the work of people like Lisa Wilson, who have done really extensive studies of both rates of stepmotherhood and ways that stepmothers are written about. And one of her big findings was that the more people were stepmothers, the worse stepmothers were represented in literature. And I was wondering if for whatever reason, when this was written in the 1990s, when there would have also been a peak in that, if this was an attempt to do the opposite. Like there's probably a lot more than 20 to 30 years earlier. And so an attempt to do something different in literature, which would be to make her a good character. Hmm. At least on the surface of the story. I think that would actually be interesting if she also didn't insist on Josefina fulfilling this fantasy of reuniting the family. It would be all well and good if Val wanted to give us a positive representation of what stepmothers can be, even in this kind of like trans-historical imaginary of the American Girl series. 
But what I find so disturbing is that she insists on doing it at the cost of having a playful or at least childlike representation of Josefina as someone who's eight or nine years old. Like, she is clearly someone who is taking on the worries of literal adults in her life and fixing their problems as if the only way that she can experience happiness is by kind of fulfilling the fantasy of the adults in her life of reunion, of healing, of all of these very serious things. And I think my wish for her in the past few books was that she actually get to be a child and we get to see some moments of play or some moments of reverence, and it just doesn't happen. And that's kind of a bummer in these books. So on page 20, the probably saddest part of this book for me was when she's kind of going, she's kind of like peacocking a bit. Like you see her like full transformation under Tia Dolores, like someone who's like, hey, um, I know how to bake bread from start to finish by myself now. I have figured that out. And Tia Dolores is like, whoa, you really know what you're doing. You don't even need me to help you anymore. And she's like, yep, I got it. And even like playing the piano, she's at Three Kings um, is at the beginning of the book. And for the fiesta for Three Kings Day, she's going to play a waltz on the piano for the first time in front of other people. Like she's never really played in front of others. And she does both of those things well. And the next day is when Tia Dolores is like, you know what? You guys seem like you're killing it. I'm going home and I'm going to kill someone else there. Um, (laughs) So that's when, so we get this interior monologue after Josefina is spiraling about this. She says, the more she thought about it, the angrier Josefina was with herself, bragging about how she could make bread, showing off playing the piano. No wonder Tia Dolores doesn't feel needed, Josefina thought. And then after that, she says, I know how to make things right. I'll start tomorrow. And she starts basically screwing up so that Tia Dolores will think she's still needed, which she sees through and so on. But it's like Valerie Tripp never gets us at. There's never a moment at the end of this book where she's like, and Josefina realized that blaming herself (laughs) for problems that were not of her making and had nothing really to do with her was actually not an appropriate message to send yourself. It's not a healthy message. Instead, it's like, no, that was fine. When when you were talking about the peacocking, I was loving that part because I felt like she was enjoying being good at things. And I flagged a different page that kind of alarmed me for the same reasons you're talking about. Um, Clara of I'll Pray For You fame <laughs> when they were breaking into Santa Fe, um, pages 9 through 10, there's this conversation between Clara and Josefina. And so they're, they're talking about whether it might snow and these things. Um, and so they talk about how there's not clouds yet. And Clara, Clara shrugged, not yet, crushing another handful of corn. Then Clara surprised Josefina by smiling. It's not that I want to be discouraging. I just think it's foolish to get your hopes up the way you always do. You're bound to be disappointed. I can't help it, said Josefina. My hopes seem to go up whether I want them to or not. Like this bread dough, joked Francisca, who's like hilarious all of a sudden. (laughs) Um, This is classic Clara dynamic of sucking all the air out of the room, even when they're enjoying themselves. And I just was thinking, because readers have reached out to us saying that Josefina reminds them in various ways of themselves, like children who live through children who live through trauma, Mm -hmm. struggling, and feeling older than they were. And part of this is that sibling dynamic of when she does feel joy, people take it right away from her. That's true. I I think it's, 
It's hard to figure out what's happening here, whether if Valerie Tripp is kind of saying, I'm going to situate this in what I would have imagined would have been realistic for the time, which is that it would be hard to have this boundless joy in someone who in Josefina's position. It would have been more likely to be like Clara, who is kind of this pragmatist in the realities of their lives. But at the same time, it's like, there's so much weird fantasy happening anyway. Why wouldn't she try to recover some kind of joyful idea of what it means to be a child? Like, she's made it through this year of grief. She's made it now through two years of grief. And she's in such a better place. We only get one page of peacocking. And then we get an entire book of someone beating themselves up with guilt because she thinks she has driven away the mother who might replace the one she lost. And she's driv- she's ruined the joy that her father had found, the healing he found. She takes mm-hmm. that all on herself, makes herself responsible for fixing it. And instead of talking her out of it, her older sisters, who are old enough to probably realize that this is not great, join her instead of anything else. So it's kind of like at any age, womanhood is about kind of like blaming yourself and serving others. Unless you're Tia Dolores, in which case you serve yourself. I actually think in this book... She plotted this entire thing. I don't doubt that for a second. And if any of them were literate, they'd know that because I guarantee it's in the book. I mean, Anna told me that this is a full house plot line and I believe her. But it's like, check any piece of literature out and I'm sure this is in there. But it's also such a trope to be like, yeah, I think I'm going to go home. I don't really want to be here anymore. I mean, this is like every season of the real world when a cast member would be like, yeah, you guys are all just immature. I'm out of here. I don't really want to be here. Like uh, real world Seattle when Irene was like, I have Lyme disease and I don't really want to be here. And that really blew up. But anyway, like every character would be like, no, please. Like every person was like, please stay. We need you. Can I can I talk about characters who I felt like very much like on the real world just went from the total periphery of the frame to the center and it stunned me? Please do. I want to talk really briefly about Antonio and Juan. Please do. And when I say this, like, sent me on a hunt. So they are Anna's children who are three and five, respectively, but they're kind of treated like a duo who are twin-like because they're always together. So first of all, Anna is quite mysterious. She's married to a man. We don't hear a lot about him. He ends up playing a pivotal plot role in this. The reason why he ends up mattering is Anna and her husband and the two boys are going to move to live with Abuelita in part to free up Tia Dolores from that burden. But there's all this discussion about the importance of them becoming educated by proper Catholic teachers and specifically by priests in Santa Fe. And I'm taking notes on them and I'm like, why is no one dreaming anything for the women? And then there's a three-year-old and it's like, but of course it's very important that he get the world handed to him. And I know that you and I are aware that this is set in a particular historical moment and that the cultures are different, but I think there was something important and subversive about the ways that William in the Felicity series didn't matter. Right. Do you you understand what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, It mattered that Felicity wanted to be educated at William and Mary and learned that she probably wouldn't. And I'm not saying they have to be mirrors of each other, but the family has this entire conversation about how important it is that this three and five-year-old, respectively, get the world's best education. And Josefina's basically beating herself over the head with a piece of bread. Yeah, it's 
It's remarkable what does and does not matter in terms of what gets airtime in these family convos. Like, (laughs) Josefina is basically, like, performing martyrdom in real time and making herself a saint and likely will create her own saint medal to be worn by Sombrita later in book seven, yet unwritten. And it's like, no one's clocking that. No one's paying attention. Tia Magdalena, alleged healer, isn't really clocking Josefina as someone who might need some kind of healing. And said she's like, oh my God, I'm kind of psychic. I did think you wanted to ask me a question. It's so bizarre. And it's like, Tia Magdalena and Tia Dolores have some like weird girls vacay, which I did not see coming, where it's like, obviously Tia Dolores is going to go be with her for a couple of days. They're just going to have some gal time. She's preparing her for marriage. I think that's what that's about. In what way? I think she's just like giving her intel. I think she's like, your life as you knew it is over. You have daughters and you have grandchildren now. Dot, dot, dot. And slipping her some packages because she knows the father is a fool. She's heard he had to save his life and she knows she's going to have to again. Deep down, she knows that. I mean, it's probably true. And she's probably like, hey, Tia Dolores, like, I've conducted my own autopsy of your aunt, and I just want to let you know I'm familiar with snake poison. I know what you did. And Tia Dolores is like, what's it worth to you? I'm going to send my dad, an elderly man, on a perilous journey to Missouri for reasons that kind of don't seem to matter economically for his well-being. And I'm going to get you another one of those priceless heirlooms that Josefina broke. We good? So, so I love that so much. And I wish she was going with Abuelito on this trip. I have to say, I got so excited that he was going to go on a steamboat because I feel like he's the only one. Like, they're all alive, but he's living. That's true. He's the only person on a living spree in in these books. He's the absolute only person who's loving life. Everyone else is like, there's so much pain. Like, I don't even know how to get through the day. It's all my fault. I hate myself. And meanwhile, Grandpa's like, catch y'all later. I'm going to go check out a steamboat. If this was an episode of Dateline, Tia Dolores would be the one who they don't interview because they want you to keep guessing whether she's in prison. Everyone else would be talking about how the mother lit up a room, was the best person they've ever met, was so kind, was so loving. Josefina would be like the star of that episode, giving the one-on-ones to the camera. And then it would be like, Abuelito could not be reached for an interview (laughs) because he was inaccessible via steamboat. Like, He's and they like just show captain. a steamboat. Yeah. Like he's probably going to take over that steamboat and he's going to crush it. Yeah. He's going to love life. Meanwhile, Tia Dolores is like in testimonial finally at the end of the episode. And, and she's like, when I light up a room, I light up a room. She would never have a Robert Durst moment of like leaving the mic on because no. she's always 100% prepared. She covers all of her tracks. I mean, the only people who have been able to clock what's going on with her have been you and I. So far as we know. And now, listeners, thank you very much. Is she the embodiment of the United States? Like, is that the point that she is actually a metaphor? I mean, I think she's kind of like extractive capitalism in a dress. Like, she's basically like, let me come into this family, something that seems like a non-economic entity, and actually extract as many resources as I can for my own benefit and yet I will convince them through narratives that they will, that use religion and other forms of knowing that it, in fact, this is something they want and need. And if I don't get everything I want, it's actually their fault. And it's actually stunning if you think about it. 
When you go back to that first book, I don't know how we didn't see this before, the moment where there's the supposed stealing of the piano and the whole ruse that she creates around herself, that was a parable about the wage theft of capitalism. Damn. One plus one, it's two. I can't. Tia Dolores plus staged armed robbery, it's about capitalism. Because that's what's happening. Like, I know this is kind of like a different lane for us. Like, we specialize more in histories that happen to be more located on the East Coast. That's what's coming. It's really bad. And it's like the only person who's ringing an alarm bell is Abuelita. And guess what? Nobody's listening to her. Absolutely no one is listening to this woman. And she's like, I don't know, O'Toole, like... He doesn't seem great, and everyone's like, he's an honorable young man. I can't wait to do business with him in the future. And it's like, maybe pump your brakes on that. I don't... If we're being realistic, nobody sees Grandpa again after this, which is why the dad has to lock down a marriage, keeping him legally bound to his dead wife's family. Well, and it's like... That's a fact. That's a fact. If you actually look up histories of the Santa Fe Trail... The conditions on that route are absolutely bonkers. I know if you grew up in the 90s, maybe you grew up playing the Oregon Trail game, classic game, and we'll actually post it. It's available in Internet Archive. You can play it there for free. The Santa Fe Trail makes that look like a cakewalk because it's a lot of desert. It has both incredibly hot summers, very cold winters, very little access to fresh water. You're also going right through Comanche Nation at that point. And it it actually created, from what I was reading, an environmental disaster in a way that the migration of bison that needed to happen through that region was so dislocated by the movement of travelers on that trail that it actually led to the eradication of an entire species. So it's like, great job, Americans. But And Grandpa, I guess. But it's like, Grandpa is not coming back from this trip. No, and you know that I'm a big believer in place-based learning. And a few years ago, when we went out to Utah, we went to a part of a historic trail and pathway. And we had to hike about a mile and a half from the car to be able to see this famous rock that people who had passed through had written their names on. Um, And I was, like, still high on, like, pancakes from that morning. Like, had had a great day, like, a good rest you do this hike, you go out, and it's like this is one stop of many where people just wanted to be remembered that they had done this trail. Um, And this was primarily used by Mormons, so it's a slightly different context. But it was this moment of you can read how difficult that would have been, and then you can get one teeny tiny snippet and actually stand in the place, and then you appreciate how much you don't understand. It's just hard to read these books and just imagine where their lives may have gone. I mean, we know from reading The Peak into the Past that Josefina would have become an American citizen when she was 33 years of age. Let's, I, we need to talk about that. That's what the, that's what Peak into the Past is claiming. Fascinating that you made it about your birthday again. Look, I'm just (laughs) quoting. They said 33. They said when she reaches her Karen Carpenter, a.k.a. Jesus Christ year, she becomes an American citizen. True or false? You are absolutely right. And we've read some of this text before because some of it is used verbatim in Welcome to Josefina's World, which is a larger supplemental text that we've pulled from. I'm fascinated by the use of tense and the use of active and passive language in this back section, which they've labeled changes in 1824. There is an absolute both acknowledgement of the concept of manifest destiny 
And it is so deeply embedded in the way that this five-page segment is written as to try to make itself invisible. Like, it's a complete assumption that she would become a kind of Victorian-type lady, which also assumes that she gets privilege out of nowhere. Patrick is not coming back, honey. Um, I hope for Francisca, Francisca that he does, because I do think they had something. Oh, I think so, too. And I think, like, that's kind of where she's headed. We had talked previously about the strangeness with maps, and we see this happening again on page 63, where there's this total erasure of action. And we're told, in 1824, the purple area, which includes Santa Fe, belonged to Mexico. By 1848, all this land was part of the United States. The red line shows the border today. And for the purpose of this conversation, the purple is roughly all of California west over to Arizona and the entirety of Texas to New Orleans. So basically the bottom half of what's west of the Louisiana Purchase, as if it just happened. Right. And also on the previous page, they just sort of say people in the United States soon became interested in the Mexican lands to the Southwest. They began to feel that these lands should belong to the United States. Many people believe that the United States were entitled to all of the land between the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. So this is talking about um, the United States in the 1820s to the 1840s. Okay, that presumes manifest destiny. It's sort of like winking at it. That's basically a, a core belief of it. But it's also erasing a major thing that was going on at the same time, which is the reason why they needed so much more land in the 1820s through 1840s is because they were desperate to spread slavery. And there, and people in the South in particular, especially post-Missouri Compromise of 1820, which limited which states being added to the Union could come in as slave states to being below the 3630 um, latitude longitude line. I hope you're impressed oh, by my geography. Oh my God, I hope you're impressed. Woo! Pulled that right off the dome. No, you did Yes, I did. Missouri Compromise always stays in my mind, and I don't know why. I think it's because Jack Chatfield, who's a professor we had in college in common, he loved the 1820s. So Andrew Jackson being unhinged and the Missouri Compromise of 1820, those are two things. Every time I mention them, I think about him because he was obsessed with that. And also quoting Thomas Jefferson about the Missouri Compromise saying, it's a firebell in the night. Slavery is the firebell in the night. The way that other people got to history because of Hamilton, he was our Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes. With a sloppy suitcase. And I say that absolutely lovingly. And I know you know I mean that. He would show up to class with this briefcase and just pull out literally yellow and yellowed pieces of paper and line them up. He was kind of like, he brought a Columbo energy to the proceedings where he would sort of be like, I don't really have it together. Like my jacket's sort of wrinkled. And then the briefcase would come out and out of it would come like cocktail napkin with thought scratched on it, legal pad, binder, random, very weathered book. And then from that, he would have a completely composed lecture from the top, seemingly the top of his head. He was not reading off lecture notes. And he was someone who could tell a story in a really incredible way. And I think if you can craft a story, that's a way to make people care about something. So that certainly worked on me, to be sure. But anyway, that's what I think about when I think about the Missouri Compromise. So it's the only geography you will ever hear me quote on this podcast. So don't get too attached. If he read Josefina's book, I think he would slam it down and he would say, where's the drama? Yeah. Yeah. Where is the crisis? Where is the cataclysm that's coming? Where is the feeling of turmoil? Like I've mentioned before and referenced sort of 
opaquely that I talk about the 1820s all the time, and it's a period that's really interesting. And when you think about the precursor years, like the years right before this, there's so many events in that part of the 1800s that people are not partial to talking about because they're not the hot ones. It's not the Civil War. It's not the Erie Canal. But if you actually understand embargoes and tariffs, and I won't pretend like I understand them in the current context, but if you know how these major events in that first like 30 or so years of the 19th century ripple into the present, like you're bringing up the fact that it's a desire to expand slavery past a certain latitude and longitude. That's a huge driving force in this. Mm-hmm. 100%. And it's, it's not a thing like I'm joking about you memorizing the numbers and I am very impressed. Thank you. But it's not a thing that most people would ever remotely want to consider because it's not the way that they think about that history happening. Well, if you're particularly a white person, you don't really want to think about that influencing the history that maybe, you know, if you're a genealogy person and you're looking back at your family tree and maybe your family, you know, spread out to that part of the country in this time period, you don't want to see yourself or your family as complicit in something that involved real violence against another group. That's what's happening in this period. Uh, There's a very famous engraving that we will find and put on the website or social media of. So a big deal with the Santa Fe Trail and with all of these trails is that eventually when railroads come into existence, a lot of rail lines um, kind of map themselves on comparable routes to some of these trails or like parallel to them. So Oh, there's a famous engraving of basically white Americans riding a railroad car out west, and they literally don't have the time or energy to get off the train to go hunting, so they're shooting buffalo off the train. And it's an image that we've seen a lot in teaching and in grad school. But it kind of speaks to this, where it's like there's all this change happening where people sort of greet technology with wonder and enthusiasm, like grandpa wanting to go on a steamboat ride, but also that it it is something that brings violence and trauma and imperialism and all these other things. So the peak into the past is once again a very, I think what's impressing me and from this is how difficult it must be to write this because there's so many complicated things going on. And you want to communicate that to theoretically a nine, 10 year old reader, but also not whitewash, very complicated, important things to think about. Well, if your task is to make Josefina ultimately an American girl, right? you have to make the arc inevitable. Right. That's your job. Yeah. And make her happy about that. Well, and there's a passage on page 63 about how women actually greeted the American flag being raised for the first time in Santa Fe. And it's screaming and it's trauma and it's women crying. And Josefina is sort of looking up at it in wonder. And I think both those responses probably did coexist, but you're doing something different by making her the default as opposed to, I mean, Clara of anyone probably would have flipped out. Clara would have been like a doomsday person in 18. 46. She would have been like, like it's she knew over. It. Yeah, she was like, like I'm out of here. I knew this was happening. But also previous to that, I mean, you had the Republic of Texas in the mix trying to own Santa Fe at a different point. You had Mexico continually trying to reclaim its territory. The United States constantly in the mix. So they've kind of created this arc that it's like, of course, she was always going to be an American girl. And she always and she had like a sense of wonder about that. 
And the books have a lot of invested in making girls and its readers care about nationalism. But in fact, I think what these books actually do is speak back against that and say, Josefina actually doesn't seem to care at all, except for that one moment with the flag, about being any nationality. Like in her lifetime, she lived under Spanish rule, then Mexican rule, and then theoretically American rule. I don't really think that we've seen her care about any of that stuff in a kind of political way or even an awareness of it. I was actually thinking about that and whether that was a potentially subversive element of the book. And I think that that may, if for some reason we were somehow able to do this podcast in 1999, a year after it came out versus 11 years. Mm. Oh, sorry. I can't do math. It's longer than that. It's 20 years. Sorry, 21 years this year. I think the context right now is so different. Like we've mentioned this in reference to the passages about the caravan and about borders, but it's really hard to read this book and to not think about the crisis that's happening all across borderlands in the American Southwest. And there is an extent to which she lives kind of outside of politics, which makes a lot of sense. But you think about the fact that if you were to give this book to certain people today, the goal is to inspire empathy for a young girl who lives in a borderland in a place that is now claimed by the United States where a line that was arbitrarily drawn now means life or death for people who cross it the wrong way. Like we live in a very different moment than when Tripp wrote this book. Like just to acknowledge that. Right. Like right. that violence has amplified I'm not saying the border was a pleasant place when she was visiting in the mid 90s or when this was published, but like the current crisis that's happening is different. Well, and I think too, I wonder with if she was writing this now during this current crisis, would the narrative that she chose be one of separation between mother and child? Because it seems particularly traumatic now to think of telling any story at the border about separation of parent and child, um, even by death unrelated to migration or whatever. It's so, it's really hard to read this book and to move through this grief and not think about the very real separations that are happening every day and the children who are in detention centers far from their parents and the ways that certain government actors are trying to move to kind of extend these separations longer and these detentions. It's, It's just really really sad and really scary and I wonder what kind of story if she had stayed with telling a story about a girl in New Mexico in this period what kind of story would she have tried to tell in light of the world we're living in now you also think too so there were a lot of commemorations this week about the start of the arrival of enslaved African people in British will become British colonies in North America in 1619. And people have rightfully pointed out that there were many kinds of enslavement that coexisted that were different and preceded that moment by a century. And I kept thinking about Josefina and the fact that one of the reasons why 1619 was made a bigger deal is because it, again, puts British colonialism at the center of being the start of the United States and more broadly the American story. But it's also because most people simply don't acknowledge the messiness of centering Spanish colonialism at the start of the United States story. Like people, I think, can have pilgrims across the country and understand that. But I think if you were to put pilgrims side by side with Spanish people doing conquest, that's almost too complex to know where to begin. Not saying right. you shouldn't, but right. it's always about that certain kind of centering. And Josefina's story reminds us that it's not even 200 years ago that this kind of like 
growth of nationalism and the spread of nationalism is so messy. Right. And even thinking about, um, we were talking about the Comanche Empire before too, like throwing that into the mix and saying, what does it mean to think about imperialism from an indigenous standpoint and think about Spanish colonialism and the pilgrims and like so-called like white European colonialism. It's a lot to complicate together. And yet I think at least from our experience teaching that when you throw messiness at students, I think it 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 goes better than like telling clean cut narratives because I think now kids are so almost like postmodern that they don't really believe any of it from the start or they've grown up with all these kind of pop culture um, representations of these tried narratives that kind of show their the falseness of them. So it's kind of like they do, we should kind of take them at their word or kind of like give them more credit and try to present you know, more of the messiness of this. Like, it would have been cool if this book in some way had thought or had found a way to incorporate or hurt the indigenous people in their lives in a more complicated way as it is. It's like they kind of conveniently show up for a storyline in which they can serve, you know, these people of higher status, and then they're completely erased from the book. Yeah, and I think we had a similar comment about the way that Patrick O'Toole enters and leaves the story. And it's kind of fascinating to think that the oldest member of the family is the one that's going to embrace the American journey the most, mm. with also the implication in the back of the book that Josefina will just become American. It's very weird. It's very, very strange. Now, I I have to tell you, we have relied heavily on one particular reviewer who I feel like has spoken truth to the power or lack of power of aspects of this book. Okay. May I quote from our friend Sierra, who writes on Goodreads? Please do. She opens up with this salvo. I'm just going to say it. Josefina's books are boring. (laughs) I will concede that this is possibly the best American girl for younger children, like five years old. There's not a lot of scary stuff. And they move at a pace a young child can follow without too much difficulty. She tracks through the rest of the story. Um, But I think something I really like about her succinct but impactful look at these books is she says, the end. So no change for Josefina if we really want to get technical about it. And I think that's something that is fascinating where there's sort of the old truisms that all comedies end in a marriage. This is like the world's saddest, slowest tragedy for a nine-year-old that ends in a marriage. And I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with any of this, but it's, you know, I am very familiar with what Catholic guilt and shame feel like. And I did not need this six book long reacquaintance with those vibes and feelings. It's just, it's too much. It's way too much. Reviewer Rachel could not agree more. She says it was okay. And then um, (laughs) she writes this beautiful less than 10 word summary slash review where she says, ridiculous, unnecessary. Papa and Tia Dolores are a no TP, which I had to look up on Urban Dictionary. Basically means they're not meant to be together. So thank you. Because they're not meant to be. Oh, um, there's I there's something. more to it than that. But I see. Um, I love the way that compared to Felicity, like a lot more adults have come out of the woodwork to be like, "Listen, I need you to know this story is no good." <laughs> and I think part of what that signals to me is that people feel like a lot is at stake with this character, and people feel like this is a a person they really want to invest time in and they want to feel like this Latinx character 
really is robust and compelling and that her story deserves just as much kind of fangirling as anyone else. Like that's kind of what it signals to me. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of when people feel too much responsibility with writing a narrative of what's considered a marginalized population, it's kind of reminds me of like reading books featuring gay characters, especially if you go back a couple years, not even that many years. It's like, oh my God, they're so serious and do it, trying to like do the most in a book. And it's like, I'm sorry, can people, can gay people ever just have fun? Like, sorry, <laughs> can I just read a book where a gay person eats a pizza and has a nice day? Other, otherwise, it's like, whew, like, buckle up for this really traumatic coming out journey or, like, buckle up for, like, an AIDS narrative. And it's like, sorry, gay people actually live lives and have fun and think about other things and just being gay all the time. Can we not have that with Josefina? I would love that. I would also love, like, more women doing for themselves and using squash as messaging in any way that makes sense to them. I wanted to, like, dramatically present you with a squash tonight and be like, this is for Josefina and or Valtrip. Did, okay, but, like, I not give to this me. back. Not to you, but it's like, Val okay. isn't here tonight. If she was, I would have, whew, a lot to say where I'm like, Val, question one, do you have a stepmother? Question two, are you Josefina or are you Tia Dolores? What if Tia Dolores did it, and by that we mean Val did it? Here's a real question for you. Like, out of context, you start bringing squash to public events. Mm -hmm. What happens? I'm willing to find out. I'm willing to find out, too. And this is, like, a little-known fact of, like, a thing we share. Squash was the most important sport at our college of choosing. We did not go there for that reason, uh, I did. Excuse me? No. no, I'm kidding. Of course not. I had no idea what it was because it's a sport mostly, I will not say exclusively, I think better known by privileged people. We Fair. did not know what that was. I mistakenly once was like, oh, it's like racquetball question mark because even that's a mystery to me. And someone rudely was like, you're embarrassing yourself. No one has asked us to weigh in on this, especially me. The only time I care about sports is when someone has wronged one of the Williams sisters. Mm -hmm. That That is a powerful and important point. And I do want to add that we also care very deeply about figure skating during the Winter Olympics. I be, And I think it's more me than you, but... This is so like bizarrely personal and petty. I'm still trying to work through it. I love Michelle Kwan. She was married to a very prominent Rhode Islander and they got divorced and it was kept so low key and classy. It never made the news. And I found out like a year after it happened, I had guessed because of Instagram stuff. I was devastated. I think we all were. And I think it's like Michelle Kwan has had so many crimes committed against her in life. By Tanya Harding, by, you know, in some ways, Nancy Kerrigan. Now I'm hearing her now ex-husband. I'll assume he was the one at fault. <laughs> Look, I've had enough of this. Women in figure skating are queens, and I will not hear anything other than that. I can only assume that he was at fault because I just refused to find a different narrative. I had a dream where she was like a people's princess of Rhode Island, and I felt like, wow, finally this state is like going to have you know, this important figurehead coming in, mm -hmm. doing this work, and it all fell apart. You know, it's just, it's hard. It's hard. I'm just going to say it. Clay Pell, if you listen to this podcast, the work that your grandfather did to fund college was chef's kiss. 
What did you do? What have you done and what should you be apologizing for? If you want to apologize on this podcast, we're not going to have you on, but you can send us a voicemail and we'll think about playing it. And that's really all I can promise. And Christy Amaguchi, if you're listening, I just want to say like in my head, we're friends. So if that's a thing you're open to, like I'm just putting it out there to you. And, and that's really all I need to say. And, and last thing before I end the show This is a show about empowering women and the community that we've created here is something that genuinely is thrilling for us and something we're very grateful for. And I just want to note that if you need a textbook on how to be an inspiring woman, not thanks to Barbie or you're not willing to look to Barbie for that right now, as of yesterday on Hulu, the entire run of Designing Women is now live. And I am freaking out about it. And I genuinely would love a Suzanne Sugar Baker doll. I would love a Suzanne Sugar Baker sweatshirt. Julia Sugar Baker, the whole group, every single one of them. It's it's a lifestyle. I could not be more excited about this. I have called for this on the show. And it's almost like Hulu heard me. I'll say this, whoever you are, wherever you are, when you're listening, I just want you to piece that timeline together that basically Mary demanded that we record today. And then we learned that it doesn't really matter when you're listening. Tomorrow in our timeline is when this drops. And I'm just going to say, like, don't let her Tia Dolores you. Like, those two things are connected. What are you talking about? No, 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 no. That's not what I will be doing the remainder of this week. But it is, you know, it's a thing I will have on my mind, basically. Folks, we absolutely love whatever season it is because it is Virgo season. (sighs) No, and and just on that note, and by way of closing, it's my older brother's birthday tomorrow, and I want to say happy birthday, Rick. Love you very much. I will say that I did laugh when I read Barbie released an Amelia Earhart doll last year as part of this Inspiring Women series because my brother is an airline pilot, and growing up, he would always just say, in history class, if her name was brought up, he would just totally serious say she was a person who was bad at her job. (gasps) objectively not wrong well you can imagine how well that went so now anytime there's a news story about her especially when her alleged remains surfaced last year we were just constantly sending him that material like please take this seriously that's all i can say r.i.p amelia i don't know where you are right now but r.i.p if you are amelia Earhart, or if you have hot takes about amelia Earhart. We would love if you emailed that or other Ashanti content to us at americangirlspod at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at a girls pod, which is our shortest handle, and on American Girls Podcast on Instagram. And you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. I've already heard from many of you. Love hearing your thoughts. I will say I've had a lot of straight men drop into my DMs this past weekend. And I just want to say, if you've been listening to the show, you should know that there are certain kind of overtures I am not interested in. But I do love hearing from everyone. On Twitter, I can be found at Mary Mahoney 123 And Allison, where can we find you? You can find me on all the things at Allison Horrocks at um, Twitter, on Instagram, and also at email. Um, And we really do love when you write to us and share your thoughts about whatever topic we bring up, but especially American Girl. And also Designing Women, just going to put that out there. So can't wait. (laughs) TNT. The first Designing Woman. That is the truth. She did it. Valid trip, you did it again. We're going to have some more Josefina content for y'all. We'll be in touch. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.